I'm your brother, Fireman Diesel Ogaya, and welcome to the Class War Battlefield Podcast. When I started this show in 2011, my goal was to inform, inform, inform. Obviously, the show has evolved, a lot of new topics, a lot of new thoughts, taking on metaphysics, some spirituality, hitting you with all types of things that you may have never heard of, and some that you have. It's always lively. But now I'm coming to you to ask you to help me prolong this podcast. For years, I have been producing this podcast for free on your behalf. I am now coming to you to ask you to support this work. whatever you can do, please do. And now, the definition. definition. Long before the economic blight, of the depression descended on the nation. Millions of our people were living in wastelands of want and fear. Men and women too old and infirm to work either depended on those who had but little to share or spent their remaining years within the walls of a poorhouse. Fatherless children early learned the meaning of being a burden to relatives or to the community. Men and women still strong, still young, but discarded as gainful workers, were drained of self-confidence and self-respect. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens. Young people have come to wonder what would be their lot when they came to old age. Young people have come to wonder what would be their lot when they came to old age. The man with a job has wondered. The man with the job has wondered how long the job would last. How long the job would last. How long the job would last. We have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen. Social Security gives some protection through unemployment compensation. Through unemployment compensation, old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children. Our federal government was established, among other things, to promote the general welfare. To promote the general welfare. It is our plain duty, our plain duty, to provide for that security upon which welfare depends. We have come a long way. We've come a long way. But we still have a long way to go. This is the frontier. The America. The America. The America. The America that we have set ourselves to reclaim. Seventy-five years after its creation, Social Security is widely popular, but it is also controversial. In recent years, its long-term financial viability has been debated, with critics echoing complaints first raised during the 1930s. 
Social Security's critics complain that Congress uses the money from the Social Security Trust Funds for other purposes, while the program's defenders argue that the trust funds hold real assets. Critics think the program needs to be replaced or dramatically changed. Defenders maintain that the system's solvency can be assured with shared economic sacrifice. Stark demographic and fiscal trends demand the nation's attention. The Social Security Trust Funds have grown steadily since 1935. Today, they stand at over $2.5 trillion. The trust funds are projected to continue growing until 2025 and then decline rapidly. Without action, the Social Security Trust Funds will be empty in 2037. At that point, Social Security will continue, but it will be supported largely through payroll taxes and benefits will be funded at only 78%. Ultimately, the question today is the same one the nation has faced since 1935. Is Social Security still our plain duty? Let's play this Nikki Haley thing because this fits into what I wanted to to talk with you about, Jamel. Um, just how uh, Vivek went, d took the maximalist positions on all of you know the most uh, br brutish uh, Republican impulses, whether it be uh, just being incredibly you know saying I want Israel's border policies down at the Mexico border, or uh, uh, saying the climate change agenda is a hoax, right? So giving the red meat to the base, and and he has the ability to do so with no real political background. It's just it's all theater for him, and he's auditioning for. I don't know some the cable news show or VP or something like that, but 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 this, the the difference between the what you're seeing growing within the base um, and the the establishment Republicans and what their true agenda is is really fascinating. You saw a little bit of it in the um, back and forth between Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley on um, Ukraine uh, with the, the differences between the more traditional neoconservative uh, pro-Pentagon uh, kind of uh, military-industrial complex thinking and this libertarian-leaning uh, uh, ideology, I guess. But also what they didn't flesh out is Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and some of the other traditional Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Um, is that this the clip uh, of, of Nikki Haley on Social Security and Medicare? Let's play this because uh, this is just a reminder. Yeah, this is not the one. Um, it's the other one. This is a reminder of exactly what the Republican Party agenda is when essentially Trump is out of the well, picture and isn't disciplining them. Um on this issue because he kind of cut out Republicans legs in these latest negotiations with Biden out from under them when he said uh, we shouldn't touch Social Security and Medicare. But this is really what they want to do. 
Well, you know, you've got multiple candidates on that stage that said they wouldn't touch entitlements, including Trump. And any candidate that says they're not going to touch entitlements means that they're basically going to go into the go into office and then leave America bankrupt. Social Security is going to go bankrupt in 10 years. Medicare is going to go bankrupt in eight. So the way we deal with it is we don't touch anyone's retirement or anyone who's been promised in. But we go to people like my kids in their 20s when they're coming into the system and we say the rules have changed. We change retirement age to reflect life expectancy. Instead of cost of living increases, we do it based on inflation. We limit the benefits on the wealthy and we expand Medicare Advantage plans. What's the right age there then, Ambassador? Well, I think we have to do the numbers. We've got to figure out what it is. But what we do know is 65 is way too low and we need to increase that. We need to do it according to life expectancy. Yeah, as Matt says, life expectancy is going down. Um, and also there are studies that show that the longer you work, the shorter your life expectancy can be. Almost as if, you know, uh, having to work until your elder years is not great for your health. And just to fact check her, no Social Security and Medicare are not going bankrupt. Yet the Social Security Trust Fund is a little bit more in like financial precarity because of Treasury bonds. But that is quite easily fixed uh, by just raising the cap. There are a lot of things that you can do, but this is just this is the austerity agenda of the Republican Party that is as foundational to what they believe in as anything else. That's right. I mean, the, Trump's to the extent that Trump had like any innovation when he in the 2016 race, it was sort of jettisoning all of that, right? Saying, you know, saying to voters, basically, like, I know you're I know you're here for the anti-immigrant stuff. I know you're here for sort of like the meanness and everything. So I'm going to focus on that. I know you don't want to hear someone talk about taking your Medicare or Social Security. That's very unpopular. So I'm not going to do it. Um, and that that work. And it is fascinating to see that, you know, when he's not on the stage, they just go back to talking about it, kind of unaware that it's um, and that it's politically unpopular. I think in Haley's case, he's trying to present herself as sort of the only serious adult on the stage, though, as you as you as you say, the claim she's making about those programs, they're going to go bankrupt in some way, uh, just don't really hold up to scrutiny. Like, how can if Social Security goes bankrupt, the program that more or less is financed by existing workers paying taxes mm-hmm. to current beneficiaries. So if that goes bankrupt, what that means is that like society is collapsed, right? Yes, <laughs> that's, that's what that means. It's self-sustaining. Um, I mean, there is right. in theory, but, you know, they want to be able to cut into it and and create more leverage for people to remain in the workforce that's their agenda that's right and to and to siphon siphon the money um into private accounts that you know mutual funds and private equity can like skim skim off of for their own profit so yeah that's that's the agenda it's very unpopular um uh, and they cannot help but go back to it which i think gets gets to this point of kind of just like an intellectual exhaustion among mainstream republicans that is being that has been papered over really by uh by trump's uh dominance of the entire republican party we can never ensure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life But we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job and against poverty-stricken old age. When the Great Depression struck, there was no federal social safety net for the elderly and the unemployed. Almost half of American senior citizens were unable to support themselves. 
jobless people fell quickly into poverty. Family resources and charities were often stretched beyond the breaking point, and state and local government provided little aid. President Roosevelt, Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, and other reformers had long supported the idea of government-sponsored pensions and unemployment insurance. In California, Francis Townsend launched a national campaign to provide everyone over 60 with generous monthly pensions, funded by a national sales tax. Since recipients had to spend their checks within 30 days, Townsend argued his proposal would also revive the economy by stimulating consumer spending. In Louisiana, Senator Huey Long's popular Share Our Wealth program promised to make every man a king by taxing the rich to provide a guaranteed annual minimum income to every American. In Michigan, Charles Coughlin, a charismatic Roman Catholic priest with a popular national radio program, railed against Wall Street bankers and advocated inflationary monetary schemes. On August 14, 1935, FDR signed his proudest domestic achievement, the Social Security Act. It created old age pensions and unemployment insurance funded by payroll taxes on workers and employers. The act also provided grants to states to assist disabled people and fatherless children. Today, an estimated 165 million workers are covered under Social Security, and more than 59 million Americans receive benefits each year. Enacted some eight decades ago, Social Security is providing some measure of protection against the loss of a job and against poverty-ridden old age to more Americans than ever. 75 years ago today, in the midst of the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt signed Social Security into law, laying a cornerstone in the foundation of America's middle class and assuring generations of America's seniors that after a lifetime of hard work, they'd have a chance to retire with dignity. We have an obligation to keep that promise, to safeguard Social Security for our seniors, people with disabilities, and for all Americans, today, tomorrow, and forever. Gone. The wild rock, the balloon burst, the depression, everything down the drain. Banks failed, closing their doors. Stores failed, closed, bolted. Industry, factory, mills, plants, all across the country shut down, closed. The fire escapes were worthless now. Plenty of merchandise, plenty of things to sell, but who had the money to buy? When production is greater than ability to buy, that's a depression. Twelve million unemployed. Fifteen. Seventeen million. No place to go. No way to turn. You get riled up sometimes. Anger spilling over, like the dairy farmers fighting over the price of milk when nobody could buy it anyways. You'd read about the foreclosures. Farms put under the hammer for non-payment of mortgage. You'd read they'd come close to lynching federal judges who issued the foreclosures. Most of all, you felt it inside. It wasn't only your belly that was hungry. You felt a, a uselessness, like you weren't a man anymore. 1930, 31, 32, the bottom. There had been panics before, depressions. Not like this. 
never like this. Within the year, three million Americans are ex-wage earners, unemployed. And the ranks of the unemployed are to soar to 15 million. 5,000 banks shut their doors to depositors now in greatest need of their savings. Many would never reopen. Private construction virtually ceases. Mills and factories shut down. Railroads come to a virtual standstill. Millions of Americans, men, women, and children, wait in the cold, on bread lines, in soup kitchens. The fortunate are on relief. The lucky work for an average of $3 a day take-home pay. I pledge you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. A new voice? Pledging what? Some sort of new deal? And people listened. They weren't sure. A voice saying we could be let out of it. But saying was one thing, campaign talk. What would happen when he got in? November 1932, elected. January 1933, February 1933, March, inauguration. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures or such other measures as the Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom, I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. This nation is asking for action and action now. In this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. American dream used to mean? I do. It used to mean working hard, keeping your nose clean, and getting enough of a paycheck so you could raise your family, meet all the essentials you need. You know, we went through this a couple days ago. It's worth repeating. Be able to take a vacation every now and then, afford a quality retirement. 
If you wanted to be really successful, climb to the highest rungs of the American ladder, it used to mean coming up with an idea and starting a small business where there's a local shoe store, appliance store, travel agency, repair shop. It used to mean hiring local members of your community to build that business and eventually passing that business on to your kids and those employees you know, staying there long enough to get retirement and maybe their kids working for you. Remember Main Streets and cities across America before Reagan? I realize many of you are not old enough to remember. Ask somebody who is. You will be astounded. Or go back and look at some of the old movies, you know, uh, Netflix or whatever. You, you, can, you can see these old TV shows from the 60s and 70s. America was completely different. They all look completely different, full of their own unique shops, boutiques, all employing local workers, making good paychecks so they could spend money at other local stores and keep the local economy thriving. That used to be the American dream. And then something happened. That something was Reaganomics. Specifically, changes in our antitrust laws and our tax code that opened the way for corporate predators like Bain Capital. Bain Capital's business model would have been a crime in the 1970s or at any other time in American history, by and large. Reagan legalized it. That gave the way to transnational corporations that devoured local, local shops on Main Street by undercutting them using cheap labor abroad, tax loopholes, massive government subsidies. Look around Main Street today. They all look the same. Everywhere you go, Walmart, Best Buys, McDonald's, Olive Garden, Burger King. I mean, you know the list. Those local businesses from yesterday, they're gone. Or occasionally some brands survive, but they're actually secretly owned by PepsiCo. Those good paychecks that recycled wealth through the local economy, they're gone. Everybody's working for burger flipping wages, except a few teachers. And you got the whole Republican Party screaming, oh, look at that. They're making too much money. And then came the leveraged buyout artists and the hostile takeoff, uh, uh, takeover hustlers who eventually got so much bad press LBO and hostile takeovers that they changed their industry's name. They officially changed their name to private equity, or as I refer to it, pirate equity. It was the opening for corporate predators who created a new business model wherein billions were made simply by harvesting local companies, sucking all the wealth out of them, and then discarding their bones or selling them for scrap. Here's how one of those predators explained how it was done back in 1985, right after Ronald Reagan made it legal. Bain Capital is an investment partnership which was formed to invest in startup companies and ongoing companies, then to take an active hand in managing them, and hopefully five to eight years later to harvest them at a significant profit. Sound familiar? That was Mitt Romney, 1985. Harvest them for a significant profit. Yep. He just said that. Harvesting is usually a term reserved for farming, farming when you're you know, ripping the crops out of the ground, removing the grain or fruit of value, and like Bain did with our middle-class workers in factories, throwing everything else away or burning it in the fields. It's a term used to describe inhumane third-world regimes that harvest human organs. It's a term used to describe the plot lines of sci-fi movies when aliens harvest humans. It's a term Mitt Romney used to describe what his company was created to do to local economies. 
Romney's not a job creator by his own by his own admission. He's a profit harvester. And today, all that money he's made harvesting the money in what were once our local economies is being used to finance his run for the White House to be the harvester in chief. I mean, really, that's what it all comes down to. The American dream is, I mean, it's, it's toast. I told, you know, a couple days ago, I told the story of my dad and, and how, you know, through, largely because of the GI Bill, he was able to go to college. He didn't graduate because my mom got pregnant with me. He got a good union job or a good job in a union shop. Lansing Tool and Die Sinking, worked there for 40 years, died owning his own home. He had a new car every three years, a good GM car at that, made just up the street from him. They made the parts for them. At Lansing Tool and Dice Air, they made the dies that made the parts. And I had the American dream, too. I mean, it was amazing. It was just, you know, I look back on it, it was just amazing. In 1957, when Sputnik went up, Dwight Eisenhower went nuts and said, okay, let's find, you know, gifted kids in America and really give them a shot. And myself and another friend of mine were pulled out of our elementary school, not literally pulled out, but selected out and said, you can learn as much as you want, as fast as you can. And by sixth grade, we were like, you know, we were college level, pretty much everything. And that next summer, I got this uh, summer scholarship to go to Michigan State University. And then, you know, went, went to junior high school. And in the midst of that, the Vietnam War started and everything fell apart. The money for gifted kids went away. So 10th grade, high school, I was hating it. I was bored silly. I eventually got basically thrown out of high school in the 10th grade. Took a GED, scored the 97th and 98th percentile right across the board, which got me into Lansing Community College, where I eventually dropped out of there too why because i had started a business in east lansing michigan that by that time had five employees and i was making more money than my dad was and i've been an entrepreneur ever since literally ever since ever since i was 17 18 years old and that's the american dream too and increasingly it's dead you're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 866-987-THOM. Do you really think that somebody who was a high school kickout and a college dropout today could start a series of businesses, make a good living, raise kids, have a successful family? How many years have you gone without a job? I can't think how long. It's been a long time. Welfare reform. By the mid-1990s, a drumbeat of media attention had convinced many Americans that people on welfare were either cheats... With wigs and disguises, she conned welfare workers into believing she was 12 different people. ...or loafers. Some people on welfare make more money than people that are working. Why should we have to pay for you to sit at home, watch your soap operas? The number of Americans receiving cash benefits had hit a record 14 million and Republicans wanted radical change. They create a culture of poverty and a culture of violence which is destructive of the civilization. So how did a Democrat become the one to do away with this once sacred entitlement? Today we are ending welfare as we know it. And 20 years later, how are the poor doing without it? The President of the United States signed the measure an act to safeguard children 
to help working men and women forestall poverty and want. Created in the 1930s to help destitute widows with children, welfare had evolved into a $25 billion entitlement serving a growing number of unwed mothers. My mother had me when she was 16 and I had him when I was 16. Welfare has proliferated and grown into a leviathan of unsupportable dimensions. Republicans had been trying to overhaul welfare for decades. I think the Republican diagnosis was accurate, that there were way too many moms on welfare. If they would get jobs, it would be better for them and better for their kids and better for society. But in a political twist, it was a Democrat in 1992 who grabbed onto the issue and made it his own. They're a new generation of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. Welfare should be a second chance, not a way of life. Bill Clinton proposed putting time limits on cash assistance and requiring recipients to go to work, an approach that appealed to conservative voters having doubts about the young governor from Arkansas. During the New Hampshire primary, he uh, was in trouble. He had maybe evaded the draft a little bit. Maybe he had used marijuana, but he, maybe he didn't inhale. There was talk of womanizing Jennifer Flowers. So yes, welfare was very important to his being nominated. No one wants to change the welfare system as badly as those who are trapped in it. Once in office, Clinton's focus was on creating jobs for welfare mothers. But Republicans sought more punitive measures. Let's talk about what the welfare state has created. Let's talk about the moral decay. To curb soaring out-of-wedlock births, they proposed cutting off welfare to unwed mothers who continued to have children. Don't feed the alligators. In a bitter debate, a Republican congressman compared welfare recipients to animals living off handouts, while a Democrat invoked Nazi Germany. This Republican proposal certainly isn't the Holocaust, but I am concerned. They're coming for our children. They're coming for the poor. Clinton vetoed two Republican bills as too harsh. But up for re-election in 1996, he signed a third. Welfare recipients would have to find work or else. After two consecutive years on welfare or five years over a lifetime, benefits can be cut off, whether or not the recipient has a job. Many other benefits Ron Haskins, who helped draft the Republican bill, says it was a revolution in policy. Americans, no matter how poor, would no longer be guaranteed cash help from the government. Think of a Democratic president that would sign a welfare reform bill like that. President Gore wouldn't have done it. Kennedy's would have never done it. There are many Republicans that wouldn't have done a bill as tough as the one that was passed in 1996. There's going to be a million children thrust into poverty by this bill. Peter Edelman and other Clinton administration officials resigned in protest. Nobody has any legal right to get assistance, so therefore you're free to turn people away. And I was always clear that that spelled big, big, big trouble. The new law was an experiment, giving individual states vast new powers to decide how to spend welfare funds and who could receive them. What happened next shocked nearly everyone. The White House announced today that federal efforts to reform welfare have worked even better than expected. With a booming economy and plentiful jobs, welfare recipients left the rolls in droves, as many as 200,000 a month. A lot of mothers went to work. 60% of them roughly got jobs. 
they earned about eight or nine bucks an hour. Child poverty declined uh, to its lowest level ever for kids in female-headed families. I mean, that's an astounding change. Waxler took part in a welfare-to-work training program after being on public assistance for nearly two years. Now she supports herself. The media generally portrayed the new program, called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, as a success. By 2000, welfare caseloads had sunk to their lowest level in 30 years. Anytime you allow the states to have the opportunity to set up programs that are actually going to work in their states, you're going to be much better off. But that narrative was about to change. Welfare reform was conceived and implemented in the mid to late 90s when the economy was booming. But that was then. This, this is a very different now. With the new millennium came an economic downturn and in 2008, the Great Recession. American workers were laid off the job last month in numbers not seen in over three decades. To make matters worse, state budgets were in free fall and the hunt was on for new revenues. Jody Liggett worked for the Arizona state government when TANF began. In a state like Arizona, we're not gonna raise taxes on folks, um, if at all possible. And there is this big fat bag of money <laughs> with TANF written on the outside of it. The temptation is just too great. Using their new authority under the welfare law, states siphoned off billions in TANF money to pay for everything from pre-K programs to college scholarships. The numbers are staggering. In Arizona, it was foster care. Nearly 18,000 kids are in the state system. Arizona moved 75% of its welfare money into child protection and other services, leaving little for job training, child care, and cash assistance for the poor the core purposes of TANF. The flexibility in TANF um, and the things that states did were absolutely perfectly legal. But if you're spending less than 20% of the poverty program on poverty, that really says something about your values. It's not as if those dollars were removed to build roads and bridges. They were used to support another important function of the safety net, and that's strengthening families. So the monies were not hijacked. But having spent the money elsewhere, states came up short when demand for welfare spiked during the economic crash. So they changed the rules. We saw states creating more barriers at the front end to make it harder for families to actually get on assistance. We saw states cutting time limits during a time when there was no work available not because people didn't need assistance, but because they couldn't get the money back that they had put into other things. Some states also reduced benefits. Last year, Starsha West, a 26-year-old single mother from Phoenix, applied for TANF for the second time in her young life. Her monthly payment, $237. At the time, I needed it. Like, me and my kids' father had split. So at the time, I did need it. Um, I wasn't working. I needed to take care of my children. West also applied for food stamps and began looking for work. She and her children found housing through a local homeless shelter. I'm grateful for me and my children to have a roof over our head. I see a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless women with children. So it's kind of hard. She's lucky to have gotten help. Despite having the third highest poverty rate in the nation, Arizona has moved 27,000 people off welfare since the recession, whether they had a job or not. There is an overarching mindset that 
public assistance should be temporary, that it should be reserved for the most needy, and that we should be about helping people get on their way. The effect of that mindset nationally is that welfare is now a shadow of its former self. 20 years ago, 68 out of every 100 poor families in the U.S. received cash assistance. Today, that number is 23. But in conservative states like Arizona and Indiana, it's eight. In Texas, five. Louisiana, four. Cash assistance is dead, uh, really dead, uh, in um, more than half of, of the states in the country. So the consequence is big increases in extreme poverty, deep poverty, incomes that are below half the poverty line. Today, 46 million Americans live in poverty, nearly half in deep poverty, meaning incomes of around $10,000 a year or less. With cash assistance waning, other government entitlements, like food stamps and disability pensions, have seen record enrollments. Now they're under attack as the new welfare. The United States of America or the United States of Entitlement. Taxpayer dollars to buy stuff at an adult store called Kiss My Lingerie. 20 years ago, Bill Clinton had high hopes for welfare reform. After I sign my name to this bill, welfare will no longer be a political issue. What does he think now? I did not foresee that. I didn't foresee this wave, this Tea Party wave, that would believe one more time that poor people are the problem in America. The former president and his wife, candidate Hillary Clinton, say his landmark law could use improvement and admit that too many who need assistance aren't getting it. It did far more good than harm, but now, given the changed climate and the aftermath of the crash, the poorest welfare families, about 15% of the total, are worse off. And we should do something for them. And we ought to, all of us who supported it should admit that. But many conservatives still celebrate welfare reform for ending dependency and cutting rolls from 14 million to four. Now they want to do to food stamps what was done to welfare, hand over the reins to the states. Ron Haskins says welfare reform brought needed change, but is cautious about giving states too much control of other entitlements. I have to say that what has happened with welfare reform has caused me to reevaluate my confidence that the states will do the right thing. Because we have states that are very conservative and they're going to spend the money where they think it should be spent and not where you think it should be spent. I would characterize TNF 20 years in as a bold experiment that failed. It's this expectation that states will do a better job. but. A better job doesn't mean increasing the number of people um, who are in deep poverty, which is what we saw. I mean, that's what states did. As for Starsha West, she is now off welfare and food stamps. But like many former welfare recipients, she has joined the ranks of the working poor. Her job at a daycare center pays $9 an hour, leaving her family still below the poverty line. I'm happy, but... If push comes to shove and I had the result in, you know, turning back, then that's just something that I have to do. But she may not be able to turn back to welfare. In July, Arizona will impose a new time limit on benefits of one year, the shortest in the nation. That means roughly 1,600 families could lose cash assistance, including 2,700 children.
Now, Jim, show this gentleman how you can dance and sing. towards the Western powers. If you want to say there's no rules, fine. Don't go crying for your mummy when that comes. America today finds herself in a unique situation. She's the only country in history in a position to become involved in a bloodless revolution. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. When the system doesn't work for the majority of the people, you gotta change the system. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is your brother, Vimey Adiz. Welcome to the Supply Sport Betterfield Podcast segment. Let's talk about Social Security. And let's talk about what it is supposed to be. Oftentimes, when I hear people speak about Social Security, I hear about, I, I hear them talk about, um, you know, what it was intended for. I hear them talk about the laws that were written to put it into place. And here's the thing. I get that. That is the logical approach. But the conversation that desperately needs to be had in this country surrounds what Dr. King called the revolution of values, the revolution of what people consider American values. There are many American values, many unexplored, many unexpressed. But one of the heaviest ones, and, and I've seen many books written about this, but I've never seen uh, a book written about uh, its political economic implications is the American value of individuality. Social security is rooted in that American value. It is rooted in the idea that hyper-rugged individualism is the cooing of the realm. It's what you're supposed to define yourself by. How did you build your life? And thus, at the end of that life, how are you going to be taken care of by that life? Now, connected to this principle, this value, should I say, is the American value of competition. An individual meets another individual on the social, economic, 
plane that this country exists on and one wins over the other one conquers the other one succeeds while the other fails it's an either or prospect now most of you aren't naive enough to believe that when we talk about competition especially in the United States, rarely are we talking individual to individual. The only time we are referencing individual to individual competition is when we speak about the working class or those who you might call the poor class. And just as a side note here, when we say poor, we need not look at P-O-O-R anymore. The reason they are known as the poor class is because money pours right through them, P-O-U-R. They are actually what makes an economy go. Thus, the more money they have, the more viable your economy is. It's just clean, pure economics. But I digress. Only when we talk about the lowest class are we actually speaking about individual to individual combat I'm sorry competition everybody acknowledges whether they want to or not that when you get high enough in the middle class you start seeing something very weird and that is that there are all of these structures that have been developed to reproduce the middle class all of these associations, the fraternities and sororities that most people hear about, they're all built from the middle middle class upwards. And this is even more true when you get to the top of the society. That is when competition, sure, is an individual by individual um occurrence, but those individuals tend to be at the helm of institutions, we typically call them corporations, or even associations, or both, which are engaged in that, comp that competitiveness. Now, let's be honest. Let's be very honest. Most wealthy people are not competing against other wealthy people. There's too much at stake for them to actually compete against each other. Does that mean that they won't buy each other out? They won't deprive one rich person of, of a significant portion of their wealth for the benefit of another one? No. No, that's crazy. I mean, a lot of these folks are really just, you know, human predators. They need the thrill of conquering something. But there is a limitation presently, and it's very slim, because they're developing a new generation that is not going to have the type of restraints that they have. There's limitations to what they will do when it comes to the competitiveness. How this then folds into Social Security is that 
when you receive, when you pay in, should I say, to your Social Security account, that obviously has an impact on how much you can receive back. Um, once you finally do retire. And so, as an individual, you are responsible for making as much as you can, making as much money as you can during your working years to ensure that your life is better on the back end. Now, the competition of all of this is that you have to then step over as many people as you can to get to the jobs that are going to enable you to make good enough money to have a good, decent retirement. Social Security, though, does not take into account the fact that you don't get to often choose the jobs that are available to you. But people who are very wealthy do. They can decide where companies are located. They can decide whether where you grow up is extraordinarily poor or not. They can decide how much money you make per hour, even when the company they run is extraordinarily, as is the case, and has been the case for the last 40 years, they can make sure that they keep you so poor that even though you are paying into Social Security, that you, at the end of your working age, which today is stretching into the 70s, you still will not make enough based on how much you have worked to retire comfortably. And when you say, but the jobs didn't pay that much, the response by these psychopathic billionaires is not, well, yeah, that's true. I completely screwed you on that because I didn't want to pay you anything even though we were tremendously, tremendously profitable their response, and by the way, this has literally been said on Fox Business and Fox News over the years, is that it was your fault. You should have found better jobs. You should have moved. This is a hyperly individual, individualistic um a country. So you should have, you should have, you should have, you should have, you should have. But wait. If you don't have the money to move, well, that's a you problem. That's a you problem. Social Security. And the amount of money that you actually pay into it is a clear signal to this society of massive inequality. And a 
and and inequality that was created by unnatural forces because natural forces which by the way supposedly this is a rule in capitalism the more productive you are the more you receive in payment from the corporation that is employing you that is supposedly a capitalistic mantra that was supposedly part of the agreement that was promised to the workers to get them off of the land and into the cities during the 1700s and the late 1600s, during the enclosure movements. That was part of the supposed agreement. It has never materialized, but it's supposedly the underlying, the undergirding um, foundation to capitalism. Yeah, for those of you who, who think capitalism happened naturally... It did not. It was debated. It wasn't really debated so much as slowly implemented. And there were wealthy people who thought that it was a bad idea to do it. And they, I think, have been proven right. Nonetheless, let's move on with the Social Security. If the United States wasn't so in love with this idea of individuality and individualism, which does not exist at the top of the society. ALEC, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, all of that tells you, the sororities and fraternities, all of that tells you that they don't believe in individualism. It's not about individualism. This is why the wealthy eschews the idea of um, socialism and social democracy because they know that's where their power comes from. If poorer people start to mimic what they're doing, the wealthy know they will then, the poorer people will be able to actually compete. Now look, I've, I've said before that I, I'm not a socialist. There was a time where I called myself one. I've made statements about you know, the problems that I see with socialism, but some of the organizing principles in socialism should be utilized to organize the poor. If the poor would organize themselves, the poor would be able to accomplish a lot of things, and the wealthy know it. Socialism, I'm sorry, not socialism, social security, wrong social. At the heart of Social Security is the idea that if the wealthy who create most of the jobs are not going to pay people what they are owed. This is what is at the heart of Social Security and we forget it. If the wealthy who create most of the jobs are not going to pay people what they owe them for for being employed and making this society the most productive in the history of the world, China will probably make that record go away, but it's still true right now. Social Security says... Supposedly, 
they will have to contribute more to your retirement. That's that is the that should be the energy, the um, principle, should I say, that guides Social Security. Because think about this. Think about this. With all of these companies, these big, huge companies, that are terribly, terribly profitable, If they paid their employees $25, $35 an hour like they should be paying them, here's what happens. Here's what happens. And understand, I'm not pulling this out of my butt. I actually talked to some people who, thanks to the New Deal, they started working back in the 50s. And when they retired forcibly, unfortunately, because their company was bought out by a Texan and moved to China because he could make more money. So don't ever tell me about how many Texans love America. Uh, No. Y'all got too many vultures down there, and y'all need to keep y'all vulture capitalists to yourself. They're ruining the country. Anyway. These people told me this. They explained to me the economics, and they didn't even know they were explaining to me the economics. But they explained to me the economics of making significantly more money every single year. Not 20 cents, not 40 cents, not 2%. You know, y'all know that 2% game. A company makes tons more money than it's supposed to in, in a year, and the first thing they say is, well, you know, we can give you 2% more of what you had last year. 2%. That is 2 cents to the dollar. 2 cents. So if you're, making, if you're making $20 an hour, you're getting about 40 cents the next year. And for those of you who want to get mad because, oh, well, then the government don't need to be taking as many taxes. You, you, what? You're pissed off at the government for taking too many taxes when it is likely that the company you're working for is taking advantage of the tax code to lessen their tax burden, which then passes it on to you. A company that ain't even paying you what they should be paying? What are you doing? What are you doing? Anyway. Let's say they're paying you what you deserve. And let's not even go low. I'm not going to go 25. I'm going to go 35 and, uh, and up. Because it just so happens that these people were making that. They told me... Many of them started working right out of high school, and a few of them started working before they graduated high school. The one guy was working there since he was 15. He had been working there for 50 years. He was about to retire. As he put it, in, from, from the 50s when he started, I think it was late 50s, through the 90s, receiving, you know, 50 cents a year was... A decent kick up, you know. That was a decent.
decent amount of money to to add to your um uh, your check. I mean that means, and as he put it, it wasn't always fifty cents. Sometimes it was twenty back in the fifties and sixties and thirty maybe in the seventies and eighties, which was it. It was enough. You know, it was enough. By the time he was in the mid, he was working in the mid eighties. Um, his hourly rate rate was over twenty bucks. I think he said, if memory serves me correctly. So in the eighties, making twenty plus dollars was significant. That was huge money. You know, huge money. And he, as he put it, you know, when you're making that kind of money, what happens is. And, and the cost of living is under control, which the cost of living, there needs to be laws passed to regulate this economy and regulate the cost of consumer goods because these companies are out of control. There used to be laws on the books stopping them from doing what they're doing. But since everyone is such a free marketer, including the stupid Democrats, we need a whole new generation just to sweep all of them out. New new generation of just progressive Democrats. I don't care black and white, yellow. Unless you're on the right train, you're getting off. Anyway, that's just me. I'm tired of the bull crap. Anyway, um, what you can then do with with just twenty dollars, and this was back in the eighties, like he was saying, that meant you can take between a fourth and half. Of your check. So if you're making $20 an hour. A fourth is $5. And half is $10. And you could put it into a bank account. Every single week you were getting paid. You were putting between $5 to $10. And sometimes even more. Per hour. Per hour. Into your bank account. Per hour. That means you were putting between $200 and $400 into a bank bank account now let's say you're at the low end of that you're doing two hundred dollars that means at the end of one full year and you were getting paid every week at the end of one full year you have over ten thousand dollars in that bank account you do that for ten years that's a hundred thousand dollars in that bank account if you do it on the high end and you do that for 10 years. That's $200,000 in that bank account. And the 80s and the 90s were a period of time where you still had um, APR rates that encouraged people to save. So you would gain a lot more money by putting your money and leaving it in the bank account. Now when you start getting to the point of $30 and up. And, you know, look, when you have kids, your costs go up. But even, like, he was telling me, you know, the, the guys were telling me who I was working with. Even with the kids, in the 80s, in the 90s, the, the uh, late 90s got a little bit hairy there, but most of the time, you know, bringing home what he was bringing home, he was bringing home in the 80s, in the 90s, um, between most of the 90s, 23 and $30. 23 and $30. That was way more than enough for a family of five, three kids, two adults, to have everything.
every single piece of clothing that they wanted, you know, to pay for a beautiful house, furnished well, to go on tons of trips, which they did, and to never think about ever not having food. Now, today we call that remarkable, amazing. Back then they called it, yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. I'm working and making them a lot of money while I'm doing it. And this, this, by the way, factored in health care. Because the health care, I can't remember if it was free or if you like paid a little bit into it, but it, they had amazing health care and it didn't cost them that much. As he said, when his last child, the guy who I was working with, sorry about that, when his last child graduated from high school, I'm sorry, not high school, college, he had over $750,000 in the bank, and he had a 401k that probably had near a million dollars in it. And I was talking to him, and he, he had lost a significant portion of it, I was talking to this guy in the late uh, 2000s, in 2010, actually. And so, obviously, he had lost a significant portion of it um, after the crash in 2008. But he still had nearly a million dollars in there. And as he said, look, I'm just going to hold off and wait, you know, and not really touch it. I'm going to live off of what I have in my bank accounts, which, at that point in his life, like he said, he could live easily and comfortably off of $40,000, even $30,000 a year. Obviously, he'd add a little bit for um, taking trips and stuff. But he could live comfortably and not have to worry about nothing. Which, when you do that math, even if he was going to live at $50,000 a year, with the 750000 in the bank, that's 10 years plus... That's 10 years plus, and if he recovered what he originally had in his um, 401k, which would have been between 1.2 and 1.6 million dollars, that gives him almost an additional 30 years worth of living. That's when they're giving you what you should, and that doesn't even count Social Security, because he would have maxed out for Social Security. My point here is this. People are living close to the poverty edge getting Social Security because the wealthy refuse to give to the people what they have earned. And that's rich because that's rich because one of the things that the wealthy continuously say and this goes to show you the psychopathy of the capitalist class. They'll continuously say that people don't earn, earn, earn what they get. So if you are getting paid $7 an hour, that's because that's what you're worth. That's what the quote market says that you're worth. Well, what's the market? The market is wealthy people. For those of you who do not understand, when they talk about the invisible hand of the, these people have hands, they know they ain't invisible. 
They know that at the end of the day, they're the ones making the decisions, which they're telling you is just some some invisible hand mucking with this thing called the economy. They know they're lying to you. They just don't care. They really don't. And for those of you who think that I'm talking out of turn here. Oh, it's because you're not a capitalist. You hate capitalism. No, I hate seeing people suffer. See, check this out. Let me, let me, let me break something down for those of you who don't understand this, right? If capitalism produced what it said it produced. Oh, it produces tons of wealth generation. It produces, it's the most equalizing um, um, social system ever created. It is the best economic system for um, making sure people's needs are met. If that was all true, and that's what a lot of people who support it say, this podcast would be about something completely different. Something completely different. I would be the first one to tell you. I may not be a capitalist, but man, look at what it does. Woo! Good job. Mm, Does a great job. In fact, I would have to be a capitalist because it would be a humanitarian system. But capitalism doesn't do any of that. Despite the number of of right-wingers who continuously assert that it does that, right-wingers, by the way, who are usually millionaires, right-wingers, by the way, who usually, who, if they're not millionaires by, you know, inheritance, they have sold their soul, or if, in the case of people like Ben Shapiro, have no soul to sell, they're spinning tales. They're telling you lies. They're fibbing. And they have to. Because at the end of the day, they know they know their audience. And their audience desperately wants to believe that capitalism is going to turn out to be this magic system that does something that it's it hasn't done in 300 plus years. I seriously... And I've mentioned this before. I seriously think one of the problems with people in capitalism, especially European Americans, is that deep inside, they remember being taken for this ride, you know, 300 plus years ago, where they decided that capitalism was going to be the thing that they they hang their, their hats on, their hopes on, their dreams on, their visions on. And because they still remember it, they may not understand that they remember it, it is hard for them to acknowledge the fact that capitalism is one of the most diabolically evil systems ever created. It does not help the majority of people. It grinds down the majority of people. And that it blames the people who it grinds down for their state of condition. Which I know there are those of you who will never accept that as true. Social Security was an attempt and is an attempt 
to fix the primary problem that capitalism has when it comes to the working class. Depriving them of what they're actually worth. Let's talk about the idea of what somebody is worth. Let's talk about that because this is important. I'm not going to talk about Marxist calculations or none of that. Mm -mm, no. I'm actually just going to talk about the reality of worth. When we talk about somebody being worth something, there's usually a formula that we can point to to say this plus this times this plus this plus this plus this equals this amount of money. All of these things put together, equal, you know, these things that they've either achieved, accomplished, earned, equals this amount of money. Now, if you go back to the old trading guilds in Europe and elsewhere, they had a formula like that. Once you reached certain levels of competency, you were entitled to certain amounts of money. Now, you go up to the middle, middle class, the upper middle class, and the upper class altogether, and they actually have that system for them. You reach these certain milestones, you get this much money. This is why many of your um, uh, managers who who are making a hundred plus thousand dollars, this is why they're making that money, because... They have that system up there, but for people in the lower middle class, people in the lower class altogether, that system don't exist. So they can literally look at you and say, man, you are really productive. Man, you are really productive. Man, you put out 300 times what is necessary on this specific line. But you know something? You ain't worth nothing. <laughs> you ain't worth nothing, even though you put out 300, 200, 150, hell, even 100% on this line. You still ain't worth nothing. And you ain't worth nothing because we say so. Now, get a go, go out there and get a piece of paper. You'll be worth something, man. You won't be tried to anything, not like you'll have experience or anything, but you can come in and you can make $70,000 because you got a piece of paper. I remember working with a woman who had been working in manufacturing for 30-something years. And the company that she worked for closed its doors and moved to either Mexico or Chile or someplace. It moved down, down I don't know, if it, I don't think it was Mexico, but it was south of the border. And she started, she started this new job that I was working at. And she was not at all happy. She was like, you know, when I worked at that job, I had built up to the point where I was making like $32 an hour. And coming and working in this job, I'm starting out at $9. $9. All of the work that she had done, all of the experience that she had amounted to nothing. However, however... When I was talking to uh, a former executive that decided that he wanted to come and work out on the floor with us um, at the, one of my last jobs, 
he was talking about how um, experience is measured at that level and how you never lose it. Like, if in the 80s you were part of this legendary or well-known, or hell, it didn't even have to be well-known, um, group of individuals who did something for a company, and you listed that on your um, on your resume, you would be asked about it. Well, what is this thing over here? Oh, well, we did X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 blah. Really? Oh, okay. All right. So, you, you know, when we put everything together, including that thing you did way the hell back in the 80s, we think that you're going to be worth $85,000 and above, okay? Worth. Worth. If people were smart, when we talk about Social Security, we would talk about it as an offshoot of the potential that is innate in the work and employment that we engage in. What I mean by this is that we should be to a point in this society with this economic system that Social Security, when you are employed, hell, even when you're not employed, should be assured. We are living in the richest country that ever existed in human history. We are living in a time period where this country is and has been, I can't stress this enough, the most productive of any country that has ever existed on this planet. Not in the last hundred years, not since imperialism, in the history of this entire planet. And yet social security is not guaranteed. Now you keep tripping up because when I say social security is not guaranteed, you think I'm just talking about the program. I'm not. I'm talking about the idea of being socially secure, which is what this was created to produce. Because in the 1930s, and this was not just a 1930s phenomenon, this had been happening for a long time. In the 1940s, in the 50s, wait, yes. Because uh, I remember reading an article about this in the early 90s. It was happening, uh, it, the, 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 the article was old, it was from like 1986, talking about how a depression era um, means, for, means of survival was returning, with old people resorting to eating dog food. To survive. Canned dog food to survive. That's a hell of an indictment for a society. 
all of the talk with all of these loudmouth conservatives running around here talking about the graces and the goodness of capitalism. You ask them one thing. You ask them one thing. I don't care if it's Glenn Beck's fat head. Not what I was going to call him, but I'll be nice. I don't care if it's Mr. Robotic, Mr. Ben Shapiro. You know what I'm talking about? Mr. Robotic. This is how I talk because I'm kind of human. They let me out the lab last week. I don't care if it's Miss Eyes Wide Open Candace Owen. You ask them one thing. The most productive economy for the last 40 years plus go back into the 60s with it now. And why why have wages been so damn stagnant when the idea behind capitalism was to give the employees what they were worth due to what they produced. These are the same people who, by the way, will tell you, one, Social Security isn't needed. Two, there does not need to be a federal law mandating a specific minimum wage. They're also the same people who have no problem with the federal government giving hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies. Those, by the way, are tax breaks and tax returns to big corporations. These are also the same people that will tell you that socialism is bad except for when it is, and by the way, they will not tell you this part, except for when it is for big corporations. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, when you think of Social Security, you are thinking of something that is bigger than just a program. And when you step out of seeing it as a program, then you see the potential that is in this society. Now, there's something more that i got to explain to you real quick. Because this is something that I am tired of seeing people absolutely fall over themselves about and get incorrect. The idea of Social Security as an entitlement and the idea that entitlements are bad. First and foremost, note this. The only time you hear people talk about entitlements being bad is when you're talking about programs that are assisting people that are not part of the military and that are not part of the welfare class. Those, by the way, are your corporatists and you're very, very wealthy. All of them, all of them get incredible welfare benefits from the United States government. Look up the federal role in providing money to Microsoft in its early years, the federal role in providing money for Tesla, and just, 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 you know, think about that. The only time you hear entitlements are bad is when it's helping people who are not part of the welfare class 
the upper people and not part of the military. The military has a lot of programs that help veterans. Now, of course, your brain automatically goes to, yeah, but they fought. I mean, my God, of course, you got to take care of them. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? I think you're right. But if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. Now, granted, don't, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my darndest not to make this an hour and 15 minute podcast where I then go off on the programs and how they're not actually getting funded correctly because people in the DOD are too Greedy, (laughs) I'll use that word, greedy, and so the amount of money that should be going to rehab and other programs that veterans desperately need but can't get is dwindling, going down the the, the memory hole of whatever. I'm going to try not to go, see, you, you, you see I almost went there, I almost started right down that path and I had to pull myself out of that because... That is one of the things that pisses me off the most. The United States spends a $1.3 trillion, I'm sorry, $1.1 to $1.3, maybe $1.5 trillion every year between uh, DOD and intelligence agencies. And you have veterans who can't get proper medical services because of, okay, backing off, backing off, backing off, backing off. Let me see if I can redirect this now, because I'm about to go there. Um, If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. And that's the fact. Free health care, which they should have, we should have it. But I'm going to digress a little bit. The entitlement concept, the entitlement concept is not what you think, is not what you think. It is not what you think. You think of entitlements, because this is how they've been using the word, you think of entitlements as something that you get that you don't deserve. Or, or, or you, or you think of entitlements as it's something that you get that's an extra. You ain't necessarily earned it. You may deserve it, but you may not deserve it, but it's extra. Guess what? That ain't what entitlement is. That is not what entitlement is. I remember I was, I think I was watching or listening to technically Tom Hartman. And he was talking about entitlements. And I was like, you know something? What does the word entitlement mean? Which led me to, what does the word entitle mean? Because see, as I've I've said to y'all many times before, uh, conservatives are really good with using words. Or should I say, misusing words for their own benefits. So, So let's talk quickly about the word entitle. According to Google, to give somebody a legal right or a just claim to receive or to do something. That's what entitled means. Now, 
when we talk about the idea of entitlement, that's when it really gets fun. The fact of having a right to something or the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. Now, here's the facts. Entitle also is a legal term. Which means that you have the right to something. Meaning, you have a right to something. Here's what's funny. Is just alone, if we take away even a legal concept and we just look at what I just told you. The fact of having a right to something... What does that mean in terms of a program, specifically a government program? It means, ladies and gentlemen, you paid for it. Not only, not only, not only did you pay for it, but you told this entity, which is legally in existence to satisfy your needs, that you wanted this entity to produce this thing which you then can utilize for your benefit and for your security and for your health and for your well-being. In other words, when the conservatives constantly talk about entitlements as a bad thing, it is because they know that if you go to the government and say, I want you to do this on my behalf, they, as wealthy people, won't be able to do it as much. Think about this. In the last 30 years, since they have been making a big stink, they have been occupying themselves about the concepts of entitlements. The programs dedicated to you, the average, mostly poor individual, has decreased drastically. But the more they talk about entitlements are bad, the more programs and subsidies and tax breaks and all the all of the goodies that their quote lobbyists secure for them, the more all of that increases. So who is really the ones who are utilizing entitlement the most? It's them. See, they've played the switch. They've, they've played the switcheroo on you. They get you angry <clears throat> about some function that other governments throughout the world think of as just quintessential, this is what government was created for. They get you angry about it. You start electing politicians that deprive you of that thing. And then big business and wealthy people you know, the welfare class, come in and say, hey, since you ain't using that money there, because these people have told you that they don't want this thing, even though we paid the people who told them that they don't want this thing, so they would then elect the people who we told them will get rid of this thing. Whatever. That don't matter. But since you ain't using that money, man, come on, we got some uses for it. 
Entitlements are not negative, y'all. Entitlements actually is the real reason why government was created. Not contrary to popular belief to fund a military and only a military. No. The governmental structure was originally <clears throat> created to put down the foundations for institutions that would keep a society functional and whole. That is why so much confusion happens when a governing institution falls. Because it's not just one institution. Social security is an entitlement. And entitlements are not bad. You paid for it. But not only did you pay for it in the traditional sense by putting money into your social security account. Ladies and gentlemen, you paid for it by going to work. By making sure that all of these wealthy people who are telling you now that Social Security is a problem. Making sure that they can make 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 million dollars a year. They are the ones who have kept you impoverished and stopped you from being able to put more money away for your retirement. And that's not me being hyperbolic. It's not me being, oh, well, you know, you're just, you're just saying. No, this is the truth. This is the truth. Social Security is not going bankrupt. It's not going to be bankrupt. And with a few minor tweaks... There could be so much money in there that the next time anybody would have to worry about it going bankrupt is 10,000 years from now. And then it'll probably have so much money in it that they'll just be like, yeah, we ain't worried about that. Open your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Social Security is powerfully needed. It is an entitlement. Entitlements are not bad. You have a legal right to have this government do things that is going to improve your life. And if you don't believe me, look at corporations, because they sure believe it. They're not putting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, into lobbyists. Because they don't think that the government should make their lives better. They're doing it because they believe the government needs to be catering to them and not to you. But y'all think I'm joking. That's alright. As usual, if you like the content, cash at me, CWB Podcast. That's dollar sign C. WB podcast, you know, Class War Battlefield. Cash at me, dollar sign CWB podcast. You can also hit me on PayPal, CWB podcast on PayPal. Keep me afloat, y'all. If you like the content, you want me to produce more of these, believe it or not, it does 
does does take a bit. Um, and I would I would actually like to tighten some of this up a little bit and um, start to really get into some of these books that I've been wanting to get into to you know spread more stuff out there for you. But let's do this. You know, help me out. Help support the show. I am your brother, Brian Mary Diesel Guy. If you have any questions, comments, concerns. You know you can always reach out to me. I love hearing from y'all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and I'll see you on the next one. And we come to the aid of a friend But who are the ones that we call our friends? These governments killing their own Or the people who find they can't take anymore And they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone And there are lights in the balance